My name is David Vaughn. Welcome to cold, frozen, snowy whitewater, online or in person. But I hear 50 is coming. Y'all heard that? I heard 50 is coming. Now, someone sent me this picture this week. Let me show it to you. Maybe one of you. The rear defroster should take care of this, they said. I think that was some of y'all. We are so glad you're here today, regardless of the snow. We are going to be as part of our church family here, instant and ready, in season and out of season, both online and in the room. And week by week, more folks are navigating their way back to in-person worship. We are welcoming new people each week. A special shout out this morning, in this service particularly, to the Dan Miller family. Are y'all out there returning today? I got a whole row of them back there. You need to know this about Dan. Dan received a miracle kidney last year after a long wait. And yesterday, February 20th, he celebrated his one-year kidney-versary, they're calling it. Kidney-versary. It's his first service back uh, since before his transplant. In fact, their entire family is at church uh, today. Haven't been back since then for a lot of reasons. So we welcome. We're so proud of Dan. He's like Lazarus. He has come back from the dead more times than you can imagine. D, his daughter, who told me they were going to be here today, said he, he would never have made it, it through all of the dark days without God's hand and God's plan. That's strong. If you talk to someone in the Miller family, they would say they are blessed. And ironically, that's the name of our series, Blessed. It's on the Beatitudes of Jesus. Now, some of y'all know I like a cheesy cliche, a slogan from time to time. I think it makes it memorable for you. Things like hope is the best dope, still is. Uh, no risk it, no biscuit, stuff like that. Well, years ago, I would even come up with a cliche or a slogan that rhymed for the year that the church was in too. Like the Lord is going to bless you in 2002. Uh, here comes your victory in 2003. Oh, I was very creative. The Lord will give you more in 2004. We're coming alive in 2005. Always positive. But I stopped that in 2006 because I had some members who were giving me a lot of headaches. And my slogan that year was, you make me sick in 2006. That was kind of what it was. So I decided I should stop doing that cliche yearly theme. Maybe I should start it again, like let's have some fun in 2021 or bring on the sun in 21. Maybe not, but <laughs> hallelujah. But this year, we are just going to go back, no slogan, no mantra, just back to the basics. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say? And did he really mean what he said? Just back to the basics. So if you are joining us this morning, first time in, in the room or online in a long time, awesome. We're glad you're here. We have covered two Beatitudes in this blessed series. Blessed are the poor in spirit. John Tizovich started us with that. Then last week, Jerrica did so well in blessed are those that mourn. I mean, I just marveled at this uh, young woman of faith. And today... We're on the third beatitude of blessed. It's found in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed, I wrote it on the board here. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, I brought my chalkboard up because we got to go to school a little bit today. Because this particular one is the most misunderstood, I think, 
of all the Beatitudes. And the reason is that meekness conjures up this idea of someone who is spineless, wimpy. We think of a meek person as kind of a doormat that allows others to walk over them. Meek as a mouse, some might say. To me, growing up, meekness was embodied by Don Knotts, like Barney Fife, right? Who's, who's always playing timid characters. So today uh, on the board, I want to define weakness. I want to show you how it's demonstrated. And then I want you to consider the rich dividends of meekness. First thing I want to talk about is the definition. The definition. Now, you're going to have to stick with me on my handwriting, my spelling. I know I got a lot of teachers in the audience. And in just a minute, my artwork. The definition of meekness. What is it? Meekness is best defined, in my opinion, as in this phrase, strength under control. Strength under control. Commentator William Barclay points out that the word originally applied to animals that were domesticated, especially a horse that was trained to respond to the reins. In the Old West, a wild stallion had to be broken before it could be ridden. The cowboy would have to break the strong spirit of the animal, bring it under his control before the horse could reach its full potential and be useful to the rider or anybody else. But if you were to look at that subdued stallion, you would still see the muscles, the strength of that horse. It didn't give up its power. The power was simply brought under control of the owner. That's meekness, strength under control. And if you've ever ridden a horse that's out of control, you know what I'm saying. Woe be unto you if you get on a horse that's wild and you don't know what you're doing. In fact, you don't know this. I'm going to get a little insider information. A couple weeks ago, Connor Doyle was on a horse. Did you hear this? It got out of control. It started bunking up and down, you know, bucking and going everywhere. And, and he didn't know what to do. And he could have seriously been hurt if the manager from Walmart hadn't come out and unplugged it from the wall. I, I'm just playing. Poor Connor. We have to pick on him a little bit. I mean, it's a scary thing, even on the horse at Walmart, to know what you're doing and what you have on, on your plate. See, meekness does not denote weakness. Meekness does not denote weakness. Jesus was meek, but when he fashioned this whip of cords and drove the money changers out of the temple, he was anything but weak. He still stayed meek, but it was strength under control. His passion was channeled in the right way at the right time. See, there's always a risk when you are a thoroughbred and you're passionate about a cause, even if it's Jesus' cause. But I love it. I can deal with passionate people. In fact, I say it to the staff every once in a while. I'd rather restrain a fanatic than resurrect a corpse. Right? Let's get it going. We can guide it later. And we have a number, I don't know if you've noticed, we have a number of passionate people on our staff right now. You may know one of them. John Tisovich, passionate. And could I just say this to you? I love that. Now, you may not also be surprised to know not everybody does. <laughs> we have received, he has received some criticism. And my answer is always the same. If you knew how much he held back, you'd compliment him. <laughs> so give him a break. <laughs> He's a meek guy. 
Meekness could be defined as God tamed. God tamed. A, a mild person is not a weakling. A mild person is someone who has wisely and intentionally sacrificed their ego and channeled their passion so God can bring out the best in him or her. It's so funny. Moses in the Bible was described as a weak, uh, uh, as a meek and humble man. Over in Numbers 12, 3, there's this fascinating verse. It says, now Moses was a very humble man. Here's <laughs> what it says. More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, what is amusing about that to me is that who do you think wrote that verse in Numbers? <laughs> Moses did. <laughs> Seems to me that like you just nixed, disqualified yourself of humility when you say he's the most humble man that ever lived. <laughs> See, even he struggled with channeling that passion because in Moses' youth, if you remember, he had such a fiery uh, passion that he killed an Egyptian taskmaster because his anger was channeled out of control. But that same Moses went into the wilderness for 40 years to cool, to channel, to redeem his temper. And eventually he was described as a meek and God-tamed man. He was the definition of meekness. Meekness is gentleness blended with power. And it's a very difficult virtue to develop for some of you in this room who are very strong-willed and independent. Do we have anybody in this room who's strong-willed and independent? Anybody on the west side that's strong-willed and independent? I heard about this little guy who was sitting in church with his mom and dad, and he, he was supposed to be sitting down, but he kept standing up on the seats. And they said, you can't stand up on the seats. Sit down. He stood up. Sit down. He kept standing up. They said, if you don't sit down, we're going to smack you. He didn't listen, smacked his leg, and finally the mom just held him down with, with her hand on the top of his shoulder. And the little boy had a classic phrase. He said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> Some of y'all have raised kids that way. Some of you are, are still that kid. The, the music track of your life is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. And that's okay for a while until you figure out that my way is the way of destruction, discouragement, distraction, and despair. It's not the blessed way. And if that's you, you might study a guy named Saul of Tarsus for some life lessons. If you're a strong-willed person, you need to know about Saul. He later became the apostle Paul. But in Acts 26, Paul and this guy, then Saul, was persecuting the church. He was, Saul was brilliant. He was talented. He was egocentric, though, and ambitious. He was determined to make a name for himself by persecuting Christians. And when he ran out of Christians to capture in Jerusalem, he got permission to go to Damascus and persecute everybody who lived there. Saul was notorious. He was infamous. And when he came into church, they didn't know what to do with that guy. They didn't know how to deal with that guy. Can I just ask you a question? Is there anybody here watching online, anybody here in this room who used to be infamous, who used to be notorious? Are we seeing any notoriously wild people come to Jesus? People who killed Christians? That's the church working right. But God saw in Saul this raw, brilliant recruit for Jesus Christ. But he needed first to bring him under submission to be trained. Saul's stallion-esque passion needed to be bridled. So one day outside of Damascus, on the way to arrest other Christians, God struck down Saul with a bright light, 
knocked him off his horse. <laughs> I choose to say it knocked him off his high horse. And he was humbled and he was blind. Isn't that funny that sometimes you can't see the light till God blinds you? Some of you got knocked down recently. Some of you watching online got knocked down. You thought it was because God was mad at you. Oh, no. He's trying to rescue you. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to redeem you. He's trying to develop the definition of meekness in your life. And if you're pretty talented today, if you are a you know, five-tool, five-level, five-leader, and you like the limelight, let me give you a little piece of advice. Prepare yourself for pain and humbling because the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. Let me give you a little piece of advice. You won't really know what living in the blessed life is until God brings you to the end of your rope and the end of yourself and you finally bow the knee and say, God, I've been running from you. God, I humble you. I bow my knee. I bow my heart. You are the master. You are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There is a God and it's not me. And I submit to your reigns to guide me and your eternal reign to keep me. See, the ultimate goal of meekness, our entire life actually, is to know Jesus and then to make him known for others. It's for us to become less than so Jesus can become more than. Our job is to become invisible almost and keep pointing people to Jesus. All right, now, lesson goes to the board. Now, please show grace. I'm going to try to, I'm just going to put Jesus up here, okay? Now, let me just, uh, again, art is not my thing. All right, I'm going to make him happy now. And I, I'm going to give him a robe. Oh, me. He's got, he's got some hands here. Okay, again, I, I'm not the best artist, as you can tell. He's got some sandals. Unlike me, he got hair. Long hair. Probably got a beard. It looked like he'd been eating chocolate. This ain't, it's not good. I told you that you didn't hire me for my artwork, okay? That's just, I'm just saying. All right, let's just say it's Jesus. Now, all right, are you with me? This is Jesus. In case you don't know, I'll put his initials there because it's, it's hard to recognize. Now, here's the goal of Here's the definition of meekness. For us to not be in the front of Jesus, okay, but to support the cause of Jesus. And here's our goal. For us to become invisible. And our job is to say, look at him. Watch him. Point to him. Follow him. Worship him. We get up here and we say, look at me. That's pride, humility, 
In fact, when you point to him, you don't even have to tell people. I'm going to give him my wallet. I'm going to give him my hands. I'm going to give him my feet. That's meekness. More of him, not, not really this guy, the, the way he looks now, but more of him, less of me. That's the definition of meekness. So let me ask you a question. As I've defined meekness, how are you doing with this guy? Is it about you or is it about he? And beyond that, is it about we? So let's look secondly, since we're in school, at the demonstration I think my handwriting's better, than, and my artwork's better than Tizovich's. I'm just saying right now. Okay? The demonstration of meekness. Let's talk about that. What does it look like, now that we've defined it, how do we best demonstrate this meekness, this strength under control? Let me give you a couple of ways. Because meekness is demonstrated by our attitude. Okay? Number one, meekness is demonstrated by our attitude toward God's word, toward his word. Those who are meek listen to Jesus and his word. If Jesus said it, we got to do it. Not our word, his word. So for example, James 1, 21 says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth. And y'all got some moral filth going on? In just a few weeks, that white stuff that looks so nice is going to turn black and ugly, and it's terrible. It's got a lot of filth in it, salt and other impediments from the road, which will make all those holes, which will make you very meek and mild when you drive around in Cincinnati streets. Get rid of all the moral filth in your life and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. If you are meek, your approach with the Bible is respect and willingness to obey. If you're egotistical, you want to live the unblessed life, you receive the word of God with skepticism and resistance. Right, you can write this down. The word will make you or it will break you. For example, when God's word says in Hebrews, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. A meek person says, I'm making that a priority, either online or in person. I, I will not get out of the habit, because some of us know what it's like this whole 12 months in the past of getting out of the habit of gathering with God's people. A meek person says that's a priority. A prideful person says, you know, I don't have to do that. I don't see any value in that. I don't like the speaker anyway or the music. That's not a priority for me and my kids. I can worship God anywhere. <laughs> yes, you can, but no, you don't. And you know it. So maybe it's getting back in the habit of worshiping again. When, God words, when God's word says, when Jesus says, repent and be baptized, the prideful person says, you never get me in that tank over there. You never get me to go all in. You never get me in that baptistry over there. I'm good enough. I can make it on my own. But when Saul was blinded by the light, he called for a preacher named Ananias who tentatively and courageously came to him and prayed for him and told him to get up and be baptized. And maybe that's what some of you need to do, even today. 
See, here is water. What hindereth me from being baptized? We're planning on doing a bunch of baptisms, by the way, on Easter weekend. If you're looking for a date to draw in the sand, let us know. We're looking for people who could physically and literally symbolize the death, the burial, the resurrection of that guy. Or when the Bible says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, (laughs) meaning you are to give the first 10% of your income to the church, egocentric people say, I'm not going to submit to that. There you go again. The church is only interested in my money, in its mission. I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, that's no big deal. I'll just keep it. I'll just keep all my money. Could I just say this? Good luck with that, by the way. The reason God asks you to give is not for us. He's going to take care of us. The reason he's asking you to give the church and mission is because of you. He wants you to be blessed. The church gets blessed as a byproduct. But the meek person says, I'm going to take God at his word. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to submit to Jesus, and I'm going to respond with generosity. See, meekness is demonstrated with this spirit of submission toward the authority of the Bible. And they gladly, it's the demonstration of the definition. If God said it, I'm going to do it. If God said it, he must have a a reason to say it, and that's why I'm going to obey Number two, meekness is also demonstrated in a second attitude, not just toward God's word, but it's demonstrated in our attitude toward God's leaders, those in authority over us. In fact, Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews 13, verse 17, and I have been uh, praying about what I'm going to say right here, right now, so pray for me. Hebrews 13, 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. He's talking about church leaders now. Because they give watch over you as those who must give an account. I will, JT will, our elders will, our staff will someday give an account for how we led you. Like, so I don't know if you understand the weight of that. When I stand before this guy, he's going to say, what did you do with the sheep and the people that I gave you there? Were you more a butcher or a shepherd? Did you build a church for you or did you build it for me? Like all those people. That's why it's a sobering thing to be a pastor of a church this size. Because I think I could do good with about six people, maybe. I can't even lead myself well some days. Think about thousands. Do this, though. Have confidence, submit to their authority as a meek person so that their work will be a joy and not a what? A burden. For that would be of no benefit to you. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. I'm just saying to you right now that this past 12 months, ministry has been more of a burden than a joy many days. It's been hard to lead this flock. I got more people telling me what to do than I ever had in my whole life, and everybody claimed to be right. So meekness is demonstrated in a church of this size by trusting and submitting to the authority, the leaders in the church. If you don't do that, bad stuff happens. It would be a, it's of no benefit to you to buck against the bridle or the bit 
Paul, in another passage, called it kicking against the goads. Don't do that, he said. Muhammad Ali from Louisville won the World Heavyweight Championship three times. No one had ever done that before. His picture appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated more than any other athlete up to that time. Wherever Muhammad Ali went, there was an entourage of people following him. He boasted, some of y'all remember, floated like a butterfly, stung like a bee. He was Superman. He was the greatest, his words. In some ways, he was one of the most humble guys you ever met. He's kind of like Moses, like he's the most humble man. It is said, though, in the prime of his career that Ali was on a flight, and the flight attendant noticed that he didn't have on his seatbelt. She said, Mr. Ali, you need to buckle your seatbelt. Superman don't need no seatbelt, he said. Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which he replied, Superman don't need no airplane. Buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> Even Muhammad Ali had to submit to the authority that was over him. And those online and those of you in this room, I'm not looking for blind loyalty and trust. In fact, for Christian leaders now, there's more scrutiny. There's more suspicion. Another leader falls, it seems like, every other week. I'm not looking for blind loyalty and trust with no accountability. But I need to tell you this. You can trust me. After 18 years, you've got to learn you can trust me. I'm not perfect. I'm going to make some mistakes. There are mistakes of the heart. If I ever make a mistake, it's to win more people to Jesus Christ. I'll do anything to do that. So being meek means doing your best to assume positive intent of me and our elders. You may not even know their names, but you've got to trust them. They're good men. We often have information that informs our decision and drives our decisions that you don't know about and you wouldn't want to know about. So we're trying to help you not hurt you. Demonstration of meekness is submitting to the degree you can, and unless we stop obeying the Bible, submitting to the authority. Meekness is also demonstrated in our attitude toward people who disagree with us. Oh, let's go to school now. Second Timothy, here's what it says. <laughs> this is what Jesus would have us know about this. Over, Paul is writing to Second Timothy to Timothy, and he's giving him a list of things about how we should interact and engage as a meek person with someone. And the Lord's servant, he says, must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. This is what a meek person acts like. This is how, how they demonstrate their meekness opponents, those that you disagree with, notice it's opponents, not enemies, must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Meekness is demonstrated right now today in our nation by how you treat people that you disagree with, especially politically. Early in his political career, the late William Howard Taft, senator here from Ohio. Looks like he uh, didn't miss many meals. But uh, he went into hostile territory to give a speech. As he was speaking, someone threw, it's a true story, someone threw a rotten tomato that hit him in the chest. And the juice splashed all over his face. His glasses got in his hair. 
William Howard Taft said nothing. He continued with his speech. He didn't even wipe off his face. When he finished his speech, he stepped down off the platform, took a handkerchief, wiped off his face, didn't say anything about the incident, and began shaking hands with the dignitaries and waving to the crowd that was there. And as he walked down the aisle toward the door, the whole audience as one stood and gave him a standing ovation. I think that's why he won. I think that's why Jesus won. When they cast insults about him, he did not retaliate. In my life, maybe you've learned this, I have learned that getting angry at someone who disagrees with me is my choice. No one can make you mad. You make yourself mad. No one can make me hate them or react in an unmeek, unholy way. It's a mark of maturity to realize that there's a little bit of truth in every criticism. As your pastor here, I've had a lot of criticism. Some constructive, some destructive. Here's what I've learned. There's a little truth in every criticism if I look for it. Sometimes I have to really dig, but I know I can learn. It's a sign of meekness when we realize that good people can and do disagree with us. And it's not because they hate us, it's because they love us. We can still, as I would say, walk hand in hand when we don't see eye to eye in our country. The alternative to this, what I'm describing here of this meekness and your attitude toward people who disagree with you. The alternative, and I've been watching this online especially, the alternative is to be constantly and perpetually offended. We live in a culture that is constantly and perpetually offended. And some people offended because I just said that line right there. Meekness knows that you can find a way to disagree without being disagreeable. Now, here's proof of this. How many of you in this room have been married more than one year? You're married and you've been married more than one year. I see your hand online. Now, I say more than a year because the first year you're just living in enchantment and denial. You know nothing. (laughs) This summer, my wife and I have been married 40 years this July. 40 years. I praise God for that. And in a healthy marriage, (laughs) when there's a disagreement, you often have to swallow your pride and see your spouse's point of view. Here's something. You don't really know how selfish you are until you get married. Is that not true? You realize how selfish you really are. You realize how much or little you demonstrate meekness and humility. I heard a pastor at a conference a couple weeks ago say that he said, when I, right before I got married, I, had a, I was engaged and I just knew this girl was going to be my wife. It's going to be great. He said, before I got married, I thought that right after I got married, I would have a couple things. I would have a hot meal every night, sex on demand, and my mother and my wife would be best friends forever. <laughs> he said, I was greatly disappointed in all three. Meekness is the willingness to say, honey... Maybe you're right, and I was wrong. <laughs> one gal I talked to one time said, I married Mr. Wright. What I didn't know that was that his first name was always. <laughs> That'll kill a marriage. You won't make it 40 years. You won't make it one year. So we have the definition of meekness, the demonstration of meekness. It has to do with your attitude, okay? And then I want to talk to you last about the dividend the dividend 
the payoff of meekness. And this is something Jesus says right here. Jesus says the meek will inherit what? The earth. Now this beatitude is almost a direct quotation of Psalm 37. Let let me read you Psalm 37 verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Don't get amped up about that. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. I fear there's a lot of fretting going on right now. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land or the earth and enjoy peace and prosperity. Jesus says that we are going to inherit the earth. You inherit something when someone dies and leaves you a bequest in a will. Well, David, what if I don't want the earth? It's in pretty bad shape. There's some things about the earth, the world, I don't want to inherit. But it is nice to have a a nice inheritance, isn't it? We read all the time about people who inherit huge fortunes. Have you ever heard of an animal inheriting a fortune? Leona Hemsley was a billionaire New York businesswoman in the hotel industry. She was renowned for her tough demeanor. In fact, her nickname was the Queen of Mean. But she had a soft spot for a dog named Trouble. (laughs) That says so many things right there. She bought the Maltese after the death of her husband, and and her pet motored around New York in a stretch limousine for years. When Helmsley died in 2007, she left trouble $12 million in her inheritance through a trust fund. A judge, I don't, how does a dog go through $12 million? A judge later reduced the dog's inheritance to $2 million. That's still pretty generous. But, the lo- but that loss did not rob trouble of a life of ease. A caretaker tended to trouble around the clock at a cost of $100,000 a year. Somebody say, how do you get that gig? Trouble lived the equivalent of 84 human years and was tended to 24-7 at the Helmsley Sandcastle Hotel in Sarasota, Florida. Trouble faced 20 to 30 death and kidnapping threats. Trouble was often in trouble and therefore had to retain a full-time security guard. After Trouble's passing, Helmsley's will stipulated that Trouble would lie next to her in the family mausoleum. Well, you as a Christian have an inheritance that is eternal, that won't rust or fade or go to the dogs. It is given by this man, Jesus Christ, in his estate. What we call it is the Old Testament and the New Testament. That A testament is a will. Anywhere it says in here that you're going to get, that's what you're going to get. Now, what does it mean then to inherit the earth? Well, inherit the earth could mean two things. Number one, I think it means we will inherit the good parts of living on earth right now. See, a lot of you watching online, you think that Jesus, as I have said before, is like the cosmic killjoy of the universe. Like if you follow Jesus, all the fun goes away. Uh Uh-uh. The Jesus way brings a joy, a life on earth that cannot be equaled or denied. 
I believe doing life with Jesus is better than being on a boat, being at a ball game, being at a bar, being on a beach, even when it's winter in Cincinnati. I believe that following Jesus is better than being on a golf course. Some of y'all know that's big for me. It's better than being at a club or a casino. Some of you have tried everything the world says you need, and you have come up empty and bankrupt. When will you realize that that guy and his inheritance is better than anything here on earth that you will ever find or acquire or pursue? With Jesus, you will inherit a better life here on earth. It was C.S. Lewis, the author, who said wisely, if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you get neither. Hmm. But I think inherit the earth also means this. You gain the promise of a new heaven and a new earth someday. Because at the end of time, when the paradise of Eden will be given to those who follow Jesus, he will give you and me our allotted portion and rightful inheritance. Paul says the ungodly will not inherit the kingdom of God. One day the Lord will take the earth from the hands of the wicked and give it to the righteous. On that day, the haughty will be humbled, the first will be last, the boasters will be broken. That chapter in Psalm 37 puts it this way in verse 12. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll see some evil person start to rise, and I'll say, oh, enjoy it now. I pray for you. Your day is coming. For some of you who think you've done a lot of stuff, you got away with it, your day is coming. For some, that day will be one of reward. For others, it'll be a time of judgment. And right now, our inheritance is for today, not just tomorrow. Right now, we are living in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming, but the kingdom of God is here. It's full of hope. It's full of joy. There are blessings from following God that we take for granted. So many. Things that money can't buy and COVID can't steal. And right now... If you really think about it, you can and you are blessed. The Beatitudes have blessings that are available for those who are realistic about their sinfulness, repentant of their sins, and responsive to God in faith, and then they get baptized. It's as simple as that. Those who are unblessed and unhappy are therefore shut out of the kingdom. The proud, the arrogant, the self-sufficient, the self-righteous because they don't feel they need that guy's help, but you do. One key, I think, ingredient, one key to living a blessed life and to be joyful is to let go, as I've talked about today, your ego. Blessed are the meek, not the egotistical. The definition, the demonstration, the dividend of you inheriting the earth is all conditional on you getting rid of your ego. So let go of your ego. <laughs> I said to the staff one day, your ego cannot be your amigo. There's another cheesy phrase, but they haven't forgot about that. Listen to how Paul says it in Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved... Clothe yourself with compassion. This is what everything we've talked about, the definition, the demonstration, the dividend. Clothe yourself with compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. If you're not bearing with somebody, you, you will be a bear, all right? These are EGR people, we would call them, extra grace required people. You got it? You know any EGR people? Extra grace required people you have to bear with? I would just say this, if you don't know any of them, you are the EGR person. Bear with each other, that was pretty good. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. This is how the church is supposed to operate. Meek people operate. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Some scholars say that the Beatitudes are a progressive formula for living a blessed and abundant and anointed life. The first step, John talked about two weeks ago, being poor in spirit, acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy before God. The second is to mourn our sin, to realize that sin wounds the heart of God. We got to turn from it. And then the next is submit and sacrifice our egos to the control of Christ, and that will bring blessing upon blessing. Let me leave you with one final inheritance story because I think it's so descriptive of where some of you are and maybe some of you were. We talked about inheritances earlier. True story, a homeless man was recently living on the streets of Santa Cruz, Bolivia. The police started looking for him, and he fled police who were bringing to him good news of great joy. He had received a $6 million inheritance unbeknownst to him. Thomas Martinez, 67, apparently thought the police were about to arrest him for his alcohol and drug habits, so he ran, and he disappeared without a trace, causing Bolivian newspapers to speak of him as a new millionaire, paradoxically not knowing his future and his fortune. The inheritance came Mr. Martinez way from his ex-wife, who inherited the money herself from family members. Evidently, they forgave and made up. Listen, Mr. Martinez was running from the one who wanted to reward and not punish him. When will some of you listening today, online or in this room, when will some of you stop running from God in your pride and in your fear? When will you stop running from this guy right here? He desires to come and be a blessing to you. He was the epitome of meek and mild. This is the guy we follow. So when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they'll hear He really meant that because that's what he lived. There is a guy, Jesus, who wants to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. He wants to make you a part of his family. He wants to put you in the royal line of inheritance so that your present and your future can be blessed. That's what Jesus said, and that's what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the meek. So your job this week, our homework, is to go out and demonstrate meekness. I'm sure you can find an easy way to do it. Next week, JT will be back to talk about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, just building on the blessed life.